Hi everyone, great to be here. I'm Arjun Nair, I'm the co-founder at Great Learning. Hi, I'm Akshay Dutt and this is the Founder Thesis Podcast. We've all heard stories of founders building unicorns, but what you need to keep in mind is that the $1 billion valuation of a unicorn is essentially a paper valuation. It's not money in the bank, which is what makes this conversation unique. I'm speaking to Arjun Nair, who's the founder of Great Learning. And Great Learning is unique among Indian startups in two very special ways. The first one is that Great Learning did not raise any external capital. And the second one is that in just seven years after they started, Great Learning was acquired by Baiju's for $600 million. So this is an actual cash exit, which I'm talking about. And Great Learning is simply unique in the sense that Indian startups which get this kind of exit are extremely rare. So stay tuned as I dive deeper into Arjun's journey of building and scaling Great Learning and we also talk about what's the way forward for great learning. Cool. So, uh, Arjun, tell me about, uh, you know, tell me your origin story. How did Arjun become a founder? <laughs> okay, cool. Um, I don't think I had that as my idea from, let's say, 20 years ago. When I finished college, I don't think the idea was to become a founder. Your parents were in like a regular this. nine to five kind of a job or what? Like, Yeah, yeah. My mother's a homemaker. She never worked. And my dad was uh, in the government. So he used to work for the, uh, uh, it was an IS officer. Oh, wow. So uh, was that an aspiration but, uh, to like give the entrance exams? <laughs> no. No, 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 never. Uh, also, you know, uh, he passed away when I was really young. So, um, and I think even before that, there was enough sort of doctrination thing that, you know, don't go into this <laughs> career. <laughs> I, I don't think, I don't think anybody wanted us to be in the government. I think you have to be cut out in a different way. Um, so we didn't come from a business family. Uh, but what did happen though is, you know, I guess after my, my father passed away. My mother, since she didn't have a professional uh, education, I think she had to figure out various businesses wow. to keep us going. So it was not non, non scalable, not uh, not very big. But I don't know what she did. But she did a bunch of things to pay for our college and pay for our education and pay for pay for our house and put on the table. So I guess uh, the idea of Figuring out how to make things work, maybe uh, maybe I learned from her. Um, if not necessarily, you know, scalable grand things, but I never thought I was never worried about surviving. Uh, I always knew that, regardless of wherever uh, I would, I would survive. <clears throat> so, to your original question as to you know the idea of business, that I guess never came to me until much later. So my my aspiration was at that time, and this was the early 2000s, was to go abroad, uh, go do a good master's, get a good job in the U.S., and uh, settle down there. <clears throat> so that was always the plan in college. 
and I took the GRE. I was working toward that. Um, and it, uh, and that's exactly what I did. I went, I went abroad. I went to Duke, did my master's in biomedical engineering, um, got a job at Siemens, very traditional path that I guess hundreds and thousands of Indians follow, particularly 20 years back. I'm not sure if that's still the mainstream today, but then definitely that was what most people would do. And that's what I did. A couple of stories there, though, one being that while at Duke, I figured out a bunch of odd jobs. Uh, again, this idea of surviving, I didn't, I never I liked debt. I never wanted to be answerable to anyone. Um, and so one of the things I did do was I did a lot of odd jobs at Duke. I was ready to do whatever. I started as an RA, a research associate. Uh, but then I tried other things. So I taught campus to kids. And then finally, I took a job as a bartender because that paid the most. So I used to, uh, I used to, you know, I used to do lab work in the morning at night. I used to go bartend and make money. <clears throat> and so when I did finish Duke, um, I had no loan and I had no debt, uh, which was really cool. And that gave me, again, this idea that, you know, you, you can be scrappy, you can do, and I was ready to do whatever it takes uh, to, you know, to make things work. So that's one. The second thought is I did uh, meet a couple of entrepreneurs or these, um, I went to a few talks at Duke by chance. And uh, though I was in the engineering school, I did go to talks in the business school, Fuqua, um, and listen to entrepreneurs talk. And that was really fascinating. Um, so that idea of business and uh, doing things seemed very different from an engineering point of view particularly the engineering that I was doing, which was research. It was not even engineering. It was, uh, I used to work in a monkey lab on uh, implanting electrodes into monkey's brains and trying to wow. figure out what they were thinking. So very hardcore engineering. And the, the products that we would have created, outcome of that research was like 15, 20 years out. So the stuff that we were working on was not at all applicable in the real world for another 5, 10, 15 years. And even, even after my Duke master's, when I went to Siemens, that's, you know, particularly, and again, for a good reason in, in engineering for medical devices and in medicine, uh, you have a very long product roadmap from engineering to actually being in the market. And I was really frustrated by that. The idea that, you know, it takes five years, 10 years, decades, but I, I think that it is good, right? Because obviously you don't want anything half tested or, uh, incorrect to be in the market because you're talking about life and stakes. So I'm glad that's how it is. But it was not for me. For me, I I wanted to bring things to market faster, see the impact, interact with consumers, iterate fast, build things, move forward. Right. So that these sort of two three experiences got me interested in the idea of uh, business and entrepreneurships and product and you know moving away from engineering. And by the time I spent a couple of years at Siemens, I was pretty clear that I wanted to get into business. And um, when I went to business school at Sloan at MIT, um, then I wrote and wrote a business plan uh, to come to India and then set up a business. Also because there was a there was a scholarship, a fellowship at MIT called the Lagatan Fellowship for Entrepreneurs in Emerging Markets. Again, it was this idea that I want to get out of school without debt or without 
you know, and in business school, it's very hard. Um, so I was trying to see what I can do, who can give me a scholarship. And I didn't want to uh, be at the end of the day tied to some company giving me a job because I wanted this idea. So, so it was all by chance in that sense that, you know, I wrote this business plan for getting that scholarship, which finally I did get. And then so again, I met a lot of entrepreneurs, people who built businesses in emerging markets, a very different way of thinking. And over a period of time, even though that idea that I wrote uh, for a business plan was really bad and it didn't work, uh, but that on you know, but that guidance that I got, the people that I met. So when I did finish um, Sloan, uh, I was sort of convinced to come back to India, and it was also a good time because 2010, 2011, I can 12 years back, 13 years back, is when I would say when you look back, um, was actually a pretty cool age of Indian startups um, coming to age. So I actually came back to join a company in India called Ziptile, which I eventually got a, got acquired by Twitter. But, uh, but I, you know, and in that process also, I did a bunch of things, uh, just trying to learn even before Ziptile, uh, why not Sloan, after Sloan, after Ziptile. So long story short, it was just that sort of the evolution of how it ended up being in entrepreneurship, in business, in in trying to trying to trying to figure out a way to make things work, uh, not from this grand scheme of building a you know whatever X hundred million dollar business, but from the point of view of saying that hey, one I need to make sure that I survive, and two, um, I didn't want to be working for anybody. I wanted to have an impact pretty quickly. I wanted to see products and services coming to market pretty fast and interacting with the consumers. So all of this came together under the umbrella of, let's say, uh, business and entrepreneurship. So that's sort of how it ended up there. So once Ziptile was acquired, uh, did you move on? Uh, like, how did uh, how did great learning come about? So I actually left Ziptile even before the acquisition. Um, you know, they were uh the the role that i joined for was not really the direction that the company wanted to go in anymore so when i left and you know it was basically there was no role for me and the company went in a different direction so about a year before the acquisition i left and then I again did a bunch of things uh, um worked on a healthcare idea worked on uh, you know manufacturing business um, so, you know, I, it was just hard work, right? So, uh, for example, I was living in, in Gurgaon and I like pretty much again, you know, no money, but I used to work with uh, a friend of a friend or actually a, a friend from Sloan introduced me to somebody else who had a manufacturing business. So I worked on, uh, launching. So he made a, he, a manufacturing business that he made a, a microphone, and so I worked on a campaign. I did a keep one of the first Kickstarter campaigns I think in India. We did a Kickstarter campaign, launched the microphone in the U.S. Uh, um, it was very interesting. So I got into marketing and sales that way. Uh, and then, and then, um, you know, I was taking the Delhi Metro, going all the way from Gurgaon to Noida to work in the factory, and then come back. So just really, you know, really, really the hard, hard nine yards, right? So. Uh, on the ground, uh, working with 
whatever it is, whoever it is to try and see what works, right? And like that, uh, how great learning happened was, you know, you know, Hari. Hari and I went to college together in undergrad. We were friends then and we stayed in touch throughout. So then Hari asked me about, uh, at that point, Hari and Mohan were at Great Lakes and they were contemplating or just about launched our first online or they were not online and that at that point it was a blended course outside of Great Lakes. So that had just started and they needed somebody to help build at that point ops and product. So I came on board to help build a product and ops. Um, and then of course, then yeah, then, then then it really took off. We did a bunch of things and many of the things that we did actually worked out really well. The timing was perfect. And then now it's the 10th year. So wow. um so so it's like a it was it was not an intentional direction into into education and great learning, but I was working with you know it's like uh, before you get married you date a bunch of people right so <laughs> I was doing exactly that um, I was uh, dating uh, you know co-founders and I I work with like five six different people seven eight people on very many different ideas and took it to a point where, you know, we gave up on it, right? So, and that all happened in like two, three years. So in a two, three year period. So I, I, I really like this analogy of dating because I think that's sort of how it is um, because you are going to go for a long-term relationship and you do want to make sure that whoever you decide to get into that long-term relationship, you're aligned on values and goals. And um, and honestly, you know, the complementary skills and all that, right? So. It's hard to know that. You can't sit across the table and then discuss that. So in retrospect, I think that my approach was pretty cool. Um, but I wouldn't say at that point it was very deliberate. Uh, but in retrospect, now if somebody asks me, how do I find football founders? How do I find somebody? My answer is always the same. You know, you just got to put yourself out there, particularly when you're young, it's easier uh, because then you just work with different people on ideas and uh, see what actually, you know, gets people going. So, a uh, little bit of context. Uh, Great Lakes is uh, like a legacy B-school in Chennai, which Mohan uh, had acquired. Uh, 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 like, And so, Great Learning was to be the online education arm of Great Lakes. So was that the backstory? Yeah, that's sort of what it is. So, actually, there's, there's a lot more in there. So... <laughs> Great Lakes. So Mohan used to be a, a VC or a, he used to be a tribal global. And this was many, many years back, right? 15 years back, 14 years back. And then while he was an investor, he used to focus on the education, in the education space. And as part of that, he looked at Great Lakes, uh, Chennai. And then Great Lakes Chennai was set up by this visionary, Dr. Bala. Unfortunately, passed away. I think last year recently. Um, <clears throat> but and then there was an opportunity. But Mohan was looking at other businesses also, even before Great Lake the setup, where Hari was working in Gurgaon called uh, it was a I think it was called IEMR Institute of Energy Management and Research or something like that. So they were working that that ended up being a, a business school. So they already had a business school. So this was before the Great Lakes acquisition or around the same time. Exactly. I was, this was before I came on, so I don't know the exact details there. 
but <clears throat> but that's how it came around, right? So Hari and Mohan and Mohan's brother, they were working at uh, this in, uh, uh, business school in Gurgaon. And Mohan at the same time had the opportunity to acquire, or little before that, or around that, had the opportunity to acquire with other partners greatly. And uh, he also tried other, other educational institutions. And then later merged Great Lakes Chennai with this Gurgaon Institute. And then the Gurgaon Institute became a sister campus. So that's what was, this all happened before I joined. And then, then um, they were working on, Mohan and Hari were working on this idea of executive education. I think they started looking at online education first, but online education was probably not fully ready. So I was actually brought on to build the online education uh, arm and launch programs under that. Um, but you know, it was still too early. I think in 20, 2013, 2012, um, many of these things were that we now can see and uh, whether it's online payment or people being comfortable with big ticket items online, uh, just the availability of data and bandwidth for streaming. Many of these things were just not there. So we were still, then we launched this blended offering, which worked out, which is what we scaled in the first four or five years. Um, and so I was doing ops and product and Hari was running marketing, academic and partnerships and uh, aspects. And uh, that's what we scaled uh, for the first four or five years. So started in Gurgaon, went to Chennai, then to Bangalore, then to, you know, Hyderabad and Mumbai and so on, right? So we went to city after city uh, and then created this blended offering. And much later, I believe probably 2016, if I'm not mistaken, is when we started working on online uh, online programs. So uh, like this would be a, a cohort of students who join a course and they have like a weekend class or something like that. And then they submit their assignments online and uh, something like that. Like that's what you originally launched. For the blended, yeah, that's basically what it is. So they would come to our center once in a month for two or three days. And um, then the remaining part of it, they will, there was no recorded videos in there. And they will actually, we had a partnership at that point with another company. Um, so there's some recorded, but that was not the central aspect. The central aspect was you would come to class, you would learn live from a faculty in one of these centers in a group of 50, 60 people. Where so we you know so so you learn that and then you would do your assignments remotely. So every week there would be a quiz or a project that you do online, and then you would get feedback remotely. So by the time you come back for your next session, not you've not lost touch. So it's almost a, an innovation on the executive education model, as opposed to a disruptive new model, right? But then we were able to scale this in the sense that we would, you know, we would start in Gurgaon, then we launched in. Chennai in the Chennai uh, campus, but later within, then we moved to Bangalore where they had no campus. And then we used to run it in hotels in Pune and Hyderabad and Mumbai. And later we had a classroom in, in uh, Hyderabad also. So this setup uh, started working where we were going to where the student is. The students don't have to come to Chennai or Gurgaon, but we were going there. We meaning we'd, we'd pop up a class uh, in a hotel when a faculty is coming there. We set up the system for recording. We had lab 
assistant for projects. There's networking, there's lunch, there's, you know, there's group work and projects and discussions. All of the stuff that you'd find in a classroom, we'd pack that into three weeks. And then all the group projects, group assignments, all of that will happen uh, remotely. And so we built technology to scale this. Uh, we had optimization algorithms to make sure that the faculty pool that is limited, uh, we were able to send them across to all these centers in India. Uh, so there's a very different set of innovations that we had done uh, back then to scale that model. But that was a very profitable model, uh, in not infinitely scalable, but uh, but you know, but definitely to thousands of students. Um, very high quality faculty were teaching them, and that was nothing like that experience. Could be a faculty from Great Lakes, of course, but also from IIMs and IITs, and you know the really good institutes in India would come and then teach students who you know never had a chance to learn at these institutions. So I would think that even in that model, it was, and all of this made sense because the faculty were making money uh, for coming. We would take their expenses for the flights and stay. And uh, students would be a cost, which is a fraction of what would it be in a traditional MBA program or even an executive management program at an IM or, or so on, right? So, so there was value being created across the board and, you know, we were profitable, uh, very profitable at that point. So that was actually a really cool model. Um, that, that was going on for several years. What was the, uh, can you break down the unit economics? Like how, how? Uh, how much did the student pay? What did it cost you to run a batch? Uh... Yeah, so no, I, I don't remember the exact numbers, but but if I were to, like the those days when we launched, it was four four and a half lakhs was what the student would for, pay to come for a for class. a six month for, for a one year one year program. Okay. It was a one year postgraduate pay program. They would pay four four and a half lakhs, and then uh, there was some acquisition costs, um, and there were. Uh, you know, there was a partnership cost and all of that was there, but we had really good margins at the end of the day, probably after 40% margin. Wow. Right. So, you know, which, uh, which we would use, you know, after acquisition costs and after all the, all the delivery costs, right? Because at the end of the day, you know, 60 people are paying four lags and, uh, you know, per faculty, you don't need to pay a whole lot uh, if they come to class, even if you're paying them really well, you know, that they, 10,000 rupees per hour, even then there is enough margin uh, uh, to, to do this. Um, so, but today that model doesn't work anymore, right? So this is a model that worked uh, 10 years back, but today uh, it can't Why work. is that? Um, I think the, particularly the audience that we're talking about, which is people with five, six, seven, eight years of work experience, they no longer want to go to a class. They are quite happy with online learning. Otherwise, uh, they um, they would they would have to let's say you know if you have a class in Gurgaon they have to travel from Noida or Gurgaon right or in Bangalore which is worse uh, you know you have to travel from one part of Bangalore to the other which will take two hours um, so and uh, those days we found it very hard to move people from the classroom based programs to online but today nobody wants to do the classroom based programs particularly the older um, older students, because they realize that they're having similar outcomes in terms of learning from the faculty, networking with each other, having conversations and so on, um, that they can do it in the class. And then if you can avoid the classroom, uh, the commute, that's a big point. The second uh, point there is also 
you know, when we did it in class, to optimize the time for faculty and for everyone, we'd have to do it in the entire day. So class would start at 8.39 in the morning, go all the way to 5.36 in the evening, on Saturday and Sunday and some Fridays. But today when we do it, you know, we can spread that over every weekend, two or four, two to four hours, uh, which is a, which is honestly a much better system of learning, right? So you would rather spend two to four hours, uh, you know, every weekend of the month, as opposed to, you know, 16 to 24 hours, uh, one weekend of the month, right? So intuitively, from a learning point of view, from a convenience point of view, this better. there's more flexibility, you know, I can, I don't have to be in Bangalore every weekend. Uh, well, I don't have to be in Bangalore. I can take this course if I am in Mysore, if I am in, you know, outside of this. Because we had we had students coming to Delhi, Class Center from Jaipur and uh, from the Patna, and somebody even from like Kolkata and so on. Right now, all of them don't have to come here. They can do it online. So, um, so the whole commute flexibility, um, you know, and of course pricing. When you do it online, we were doing it at half the cost. So, you know, so every aspect of this became better. And uh, though we probably have better margins in the class, I think that market sort of shifted. And today it doesn't look like consumers want to, at least in our segment, they want to come to class. And that's a clear, clear change that we've seen in India. We've seen that around the world as well, where online learning has definitely become mainstream. And we have definitely figured out how to create outcomes online and consumers are now believing that. So it also took them a time to see that and then now they see that when well, outcomes are the same. So, you know, whether you did an online course or a classroom course, companies are going to evaluate whether you can get good data science. You know the AI algorithms. They're not going to, they're not asking you whether you did it in class or online. You know, can you do the stuff? And if you can do the stuff, then that's all they care about. Um, from a recruitment and outcome point of view and, you know, they're able to learn. And the other one was the networking and personal interaction. And that also we figured out ways to do that online. And today, uh, people are comfortable with that also online. So, uh, did you lead that uh, pivot from uh, hybrid to online? Uh, and, you know... Yeah, yeah, very okay. much. So, what, uh, you know, like as a product manager, what were the things that you saw were happening offline which you wanted to replicate online? How did you build a product which uh, people found compelling enough to, uh, in a way, cannibalize your hybrid course? Like the online course cannibalized the hybrid course. In so, how, how did you do that? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, that's a very interesting, interesting story. So, what we first launched was what we thought uh, were global benchmarks, right? So we, you know, we saw Coursera, we saw Udemy, we saw Udacity at that point in time. And so these were recorded lectures that somebody put out there and, uh, you know, at a low price, people were subscribing to it. And so our first fraud, first thing that we launched was actually just put content out there. In fact, this is one of the first things, uh, you know, that I was involved in uh, back in 2015, 2016, we launched a course and we put it out there. Um, but of course, we had this philosophy and that's where the alignment of values in the founders and the founding team, we all wanted to make money. So we were not looking at this, you know, we were not going to take external, um, external in investment to do this and Coursera and Udemy, all of these guys have raised hundreds of billions of dollars and we were not going to raise that or neither 
either we cannot raise it or we didn't want to, whatever it is, but the money was not coming, which meant that we had to make this profitable. So we were not going to give it off at what Udemy gave it off at $10 or like 700 rupees or courses, I would be like $30, $40 a month subscription. We charge 50,000 rupees, 55,000 rupees because, you know, at that point only we can cover the cost. And uh, we managed to enroll a bunch of people, but they were pissed off. Our first batch of online uh, learners were completely pissed off because we were also really trying to learn how to do this, right? So it's not like any of us had experience. And this again, back in, it doesn't look like that many years back, but seven, eight years back, there weren't enough people who knew how to create online courses in India. So, you know, I had a friend who was a movie maker. Uh, so we brought him into the company. But even before that, before we got the movie maker guy into the company, um, you know, we tried to record our own. Uh, we tried to record a faculty and then we edited it. So, you know, I got a wedding photographer to come and record. Okay. Uh, so it, it was it was actually as as crazy as that. We had a, I mean, who are the guys who can record faculty, right? Who can record anybody? So the big industry at that point was actually, you know, another, you know, these wedding photographers and wedding videographers. So we got one of those guys to record our faculty. And then I was, I was learning uh, how to do online courses. And then we uh, looked at how to edit it, uh, got the software for that. All of that was like, you know, tremendous amount of learning, trying to see how to even launch a course. But basically it was so bad that, you know, students started complaining a lot because they, uh, because we very quickly realized that students are going to compare our quality with international quality, right? Because when it comes to online, uh, whether you do it in great learning in India or you do it in uh, Coursera in the US, they're ha having access to both. And here we're charging 50,000 rupees and there they're charging 500 rupees. Now you have a problem. So the standards are so high. So then I ended up uh, having to talk to, you know, 50, 60, 100 pissed off customers. But, uh, but the thing that we were very clear on was we assured them that, you know, we will give them the quality of the learning experiences, outcomes that we, that we promised them. So we did a very quick pivot and then we record, you know, we got some of our faculty members to teach live uh, and then have these sessions. And personally, individually for each student, we solved for it. Um, and we learned many, many, many uh, things of what it takes to actually deliver a high quality course online. Uh, particularly if you have to charge a premium for it. If you have to charge, you know, which is what we do right now, one or two or three or five lakh. So number one is that you need to have high production value in terms of the quality of the recording and the content and so on. So that's where like, you know, we got, you know, I got like a friend of ours to come in and we also got some more knowledge in how to create these courses so production value improved. Secondly, this idea Just, of cohort uh, and based, I guess right? Baiju's so, original innovation was this only, right? Production values. Yeah, so I think, uh, yes, uh, they definitely, Baiju's had figured it out, this what they call this edutainment uh, or as they call it, right? So there has to be, it's not just uh, dry educational videos, but you do need to have better. Uh, so so that is there, how the animations appear. In our case, it's not so much about animation, but how do you put text? Where do you put text? Giving people a good sense of where is this course going, right? Because, um, you know, you have to take it in different ways. You have to 
keep the student engaged and interested and all that. Right? That is one aspect of just the production of the courses. But online courses is a lot more to it. How is content organized? Uh, which is a big aspect of giving students visibility and control over their learning journey. And if they don't have control online, uh, they're going to lose motivation and trust and then they're going to drop off. The second thing that we learned is around um, this idea of cohort-based learning, right? And that's where the differentiation is from Coursera or Udemy. And to this day, that is a differentiation, which is that in our case, you, you know, we create a cohort of you know, 20 or 25 learners. So you are studying in a small group and that way you get to interact with each other. There is structure in the course. You start on a specific day, you know, the entire three months, six months, one year, two year, whatever is the duration of the course that you signed up for is visible for you. You know, when it's starting, when the quizzes are going to be, when the live classes are going to be, when you need to do the assignments, so all of this is, so the technology aspect of giving this visibility and planning all of that in advance. So the students know exactly what they are going to go through. And this has better outcomes, right? Because right, you know, more Coursera and all of these, the problem is that, you know, you start and then later you drop off, right? Very hard to sustain motivation and complete. Um, so we know how to keep you motivated to sustain that because it's all cohort-based. And those are the best aspects of the campus-based stuff that we've online, right? Because... You know, in, when you come to campus, you come on a certain date. There is a certain amount of learning that you have to do during that time. And there's peer pressure also, right? Your classmates are together. They're doing the same thing. So so this peer interaction is a super critical part of it. So this is sort of the second uh, and third, right? Which is the aspect of cohort-based learning, the aspect of having structure and visibility. And the third or fourth is really around live learning. So we realize that that is, a, again, a unique aspect of what we can do and which is important that every weekend, you know that there is a live class. So we follow this flipped classroom approach where we have high quality lectures which are recorded by the faculty and, uh, you know, whether it's in the faculty from an IIT, IIM, and later MIT, MIT, and Stanford, and so on. So over the weekend then, uh, coming into this live lecture, having an interaction with the mentors who are industry experts in these areas to review the concepts that the faculty taught in the lecture videos over the week, um, you know, gives us unique uh, mix of industry expertise plus uh, faculty mix from high quality faculty. Um, and also this aspect of flexibility to consume the recorded videos whenever they want and being able to come to the live lectures from the uh, industry experts during a certain schedule. So there is that schedule and that is forcing function that by the time you come for this live lecture, you need to have reviewed the, uh, the material that the faculty had recorded over the week. And so this flipped classroom approach is, again, uh, very much needed to create outcomes. So this is another innovation that we created. The, the flipped um, classroom was essentially, uh, instead of a lecture, it was just... Uh, like a bunch of people asking questions and uh, the professor answering some of them or other people in uh, the, like the peers answering some of them, something like that, like that kind of a highly interactive uh, session. Yeah, exactly. So because what we what we do is by the time you come for the live class over the weekend, so every weekend there's a live class in a small group of 25 learners. So by the time you come to that live class, you would have watched the lecture video from the faculty. So let's say it's a topic in supervised learning, which is, you know, machine learning algorithm. 
So you watch the lecture video in supervised learning or statistics, statistics or whatever it is. You know, so you get your basics correct. So when you come for the live class, you're clearing your doubts in that. So all the students are asking doubts and clearing that. Secondly, the industry expert is walking them through a specific use case or an, or an application or an example. And so you have that much more ability to now focus on the application and you know, what can you do with it um, as opposed to now a bunch of people all uh, trying to ask questions to try and get the concepts right. The other advantage is, you know, when you're going through content, you know, you may be learning the content much faster. You may be able to grasp it much faster than I can. So there is a situation where, you know, you end up, uh, you know, if we, if the faculty is teaching in a live class, some students will go so fast, others will be behind. And so a great experience for everybody. Whereas the slip classroom approach, if you're able to go through the content fast, you go through the content fast, right? If you're going through it slowly, you go through it slowly. But that, you do it at your own pace. And then you come for the live class where now everybody's on the same page at the same level and you can ask questions, learn from each other, get the examples and so on. So this, this again came to be a very unique aspect of what we do. And of course, weekend quizzes, weekly quizzes, uh, feedback, doing that at scale. And so, you know, using technology to get scale and so on. So um, that's what we actually cracked. So when we, and this of course is an evolution over multiple months and years. And by the time we were able to do this, then in a couple of years, we were able to create the same outcomes that we were doing in the classroom-based programs online. Uh, people were learning, they were very happy with the content and all the benefits that I spoke about, people started realizing, hey, I'm getting similar outcomes uh, with the convenience and a fraction of the cost with lots of flexibility, all the good things are happening. Um, and, uh, and so that's sort of what we actually did. And then we were able to price it high. You know, we started, as I said, at 50,000, pushed it to 1.25 lakhs. Today we offer these courses in India at uh, 2.5 lakhs plus DST and internationally we offer it at much higher at $3,500, Um, and, uh, people are actually very happy even at those price points with the value that they're getting, because if you compare that with anything else, those are much more expensive. Okay, interesting. Uh, just give me a year-by-year -year play. Which year, uh, like what was the revenue in that year and by when did you start uh, shifting that revenue from a hybrid to an online and by when was it 100% online? Yeah, even today, we are not 100% online, okay. right? So because there are certain, for, uh, for the younger audience, uh, yeah. Uh, people who have just finished college, um, we have a program which is for those uh, students. Because for younger audience, we actually think it's good for you to come to class um, because they may not yet have the full discipline and they may not yet have uh, all the things that are possible. You know, some of those things are still, especially if you've not gone to a great uh, engineering school or an undergrad school in India, chances are that you've actually not yet in mind how to put in the effort, how to put, how to, what is required to get to a certain benchmark, right? So, so we have programs which are for, let's say, zero, one, two, three years of learning periods that we still do in our classrooms, in all our centers. So that is still there. Um, that is the, what we call boot camps. So we still have boot camps that are running. Now, going back to your question as to how does it go year by year? 
Um, as I said, the first two, three, four years, it was primarily online. Yeah, which year, like 2015, it started? Which was year one? See, 2015-16 is when we started experimenting with uh, with online courses, and uh, you know we the 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 learning that I said with customers being really pissed off and all that that probably happened in 15 and 16 in that. And time what frame. was the revenue? And I think then, how much were you uh, closing each of these? Like how much did you close 15 at or 16 at? Like very rough estimate. I don't need an exact number. I don't know. I mean, it's just, I can't remember. Man. Do you remember it's when you sad. crossed uh, 100 CR revenue? Which year was that? Hundred CR would probably have been, I think, close to, probably, you know, I would say around 17. Okay. 16, 17. Okay. So when both the uh, engines were kind of kicking like you had an online engine also kicking and offline was online was like you could imagine at that point online was like very small like practically nothing okay uh it would it would be very very little right um hardly anything at that point uh you know online came to really 15 percent of the revenue uh, close to the covid so close to 2020 uh you know, and then of course it became, you know, you could say 100% off. Oh, right. Okay. When COVID happened. So, you know, so we were getting to that and COVID is what really switched this thing, this behavior uh, fully. Um, going up to that point itself, the, or the or we were, you know, we were well positioned by the time COVID came. Uh, if we were not, then I think we would not have managed COVID so well. But by the time COVID happened, because from 2017, 18 onwards, we got this thing connect. And I, I remember 2018 uh, financial year closing is probably when we ramped up our, and we started ramping up our um, online programs. And 2019, uh, and I think, you know, that financial year, I don't can't remember, but I would think around probably twenty percent, twenty five percent would have been online. Uh, twenty twenty was when we went abroad, so we started offering our programs outside of India. Uh, in that, I mean, twenty nineteen onwards, but in that financial year, then that became a certain a decent portion of it. And COVID completely tipped it in that in that direction. Post COVID, you know, the whole classroom blended program kind of disappeared, right? Because that. Uh, people don't want to do it anymore. Okay, amazing. Uh, this, uh, how much uh, revenue were you at in 2020? Do you remember? Uh, you know, see, at that point, we were doubling every year, right? So you could imagine, you know, 10, 10 we would have been in the... 400, uh, something like that. No, no, no. I don't think you would have been anywhere near that. I think it would be like 200 around. Okay. 200. To, you know, from 100, it would have gone to 200. Um, roughly every year, we've doubled or tripled um, right. our revenue throughout. So the, the post-COVID year would have been about 400, something like that. Yeah, co COVID, in that COVID year, there was a dip. And then because the classroom-based programs all shut right, down. Okay. And classroom-based programs, as I said, we were able to capture higher revenue. Uh, you know, those were at 4 lakhs, right? 4.5 4. lakhs. And so that kind of went away. So the uh, 
you know, the ARPU actually came down, mm-hmm. uh, but the volume went down. So uh, that one year, if you look at it, you wouldn't see a big function. But 2021, you would see a big function. Um, because then, you know, everything started kicking off. Online programs abroad, India, and so on. But sort of, we started getting that growth from 2019 onwards, as I said, right? Once we launched the online programs, you know, that really grew. So we started growing quite rapidly from 2019, 2020, 2021, 2020. Then it's been like rapid growth to So uh, the reason to go international was for better ARPU and ARPU for our listeners is average revenue per user. So that was the reason to go international. Uh, you Because your high ARPU product uh, of the offline classes kind of got eliminated. So you needed to find other ways to increase the ARPU. No, so... so. You know, international was actually quite, uh, again, it was, um, you know, we went international because we could, right? I think let's put it that way, right? So we uh, got, you know, we had this, uh, we had, you know, we we didn't go to the U.S. first. Uh, we didn't have permission, but, you know, but uh, we, we, you know, we did first from uh, from India, then we looked at, Adjacent markets, right? Southeast Asia, the Middle East, GCC, Africa. So we were there. I think in the first one or two years, we didn't even go to the US. We were actually building a business, a sizable business in these markets, which was more to say that, well, we have an online program in India. So earlier, if you think of how we grow, it was to say that, well, we have programs in these cities, right? So, you know, Gurgaon, Chennai, Bangalore, Pune, Hyderabad, Mumbai. And then to say that, well, now we have an online program in India. So people don't have to be just in these cities. They can be across India. So then we are like, okay, now people are in across in India. Now people can be outside of India. So it was just a way of growing, uh, growing markets and, uh, and saying, well, can you, and throughout we were profitable. So the point is that at no point we were trying to, uh, you know, grow rapidly, but to say, but to say, you know, can you expand these markets? And can you run marketing, sales, ops from India? And will these learners in these countries outside uh, want to do their pro to our programs? What innovations do we need to make it accessible for them? So, like payments, for example, in India we do payments around. You know, we there are lots of companies that provide loans and and so on, right? So, so what do you need to do if you have to offer courses in Africa and Middle East? How do you collect payment? Where do you collect it? So. How do you, you know, provide financing to people there? So there are innovations around. It's not just enough to put a course out there. You know, you have to make it possible for people to connect. Then um, then also innovations around people in, like when we offer these courses, when we call these mentor learning courses, someone in Africa or the Middle East and later in US, Europe, Latin America, they don't want to be taught by a mentor sitting in India. So, you know, they want people like them to teach them. So being able to recruit mentors from these regions and having yet to standardize, but then whether you attend a, a, a mentor, a, a live classroom session from someone in Africa or Middle East or South America or the US or in India, they teach the same thing. So that kind of standardization, so recruiting them, filtering them, uh, preparing them and standardizing the material so that the experience is the same wherever you come from. So we had to learn how to do that. And um, and I think that took us a few uh, few months. So 
once we got all of that figured, then we went to the U.S. And U.S. is where things really exploded because uh, in all of these markets, you know, I keep thinking about this, that, you know, in all of these markets, um, price is a constraint, right? Uh, you know, people, two or three lakhs and all is expensive for people in India. But two, three lakhs is $2,000, $3,000 for somebody who is in, in the U.S. And $3,000 for our average customer is a fraction of their uh, monthly income. And very easily they can afford it. Particularly compared to things that they need to otherwise have paid for similar similar value. If they had to do a similar program, it will be 10 times the cost of what they would pay us. So, uh, but it's not at all easy to deliver, right? So, if you have to deliver to US, you know, it has to be world class. It has to be very high, you know, even small things will not work, right? When you talk to a US learner, especially if you're trying to deliver that from India, there cannot be any grammatical errors. There cannot be any, even those things have an impact. So a certain high level of proficiency and high level of quality standards when, when you think of program delivery operations, mentors who are from the region, um, and just operational excellence, which is so high to consistently get. So we're, we, that's one of the things that we actually cracked to have very high operational excellence uh, to be able to deliver to U.S. learners. Um, and uh, that, I think, is not trivial. Uh, not just U.S. learners. So, of course, you have U.S. learners, you have learners from Latin, South America, Africa, everywhere, right? So how do you deliver to all of these learners and still have high-quality and professional uh, experience and, and operational excellence? Um, and how do you do that from India? Because if you do it from India, you can have very low costs. Right. So, and if you have those costs, then you can have high margins. And with those margins, you can again bring the cost down to your learner. And you are able to then uh, delight the learner and yet uh, turn in a profit, right? Which is what we're doing today. Amazing. Um, what kind of courses uh, were being offered by the time COVID hit? So, primarily, it was in data science at that point. And I think we had. Um, maybe one or two courses in AI, uh, maybe cloud computing. So not not a very broad portfolio as we do. So these were courses for engineers to upgrade themselves, basically. Not uh, not fully. In India, by the way, that is true. In India, most of the people who enroll are engineers who are, uh, because they are, they are uh, coming out of engineering schools with very poor quality of education and very little hands-on practical experience. So they've not actually coded and they've not really gotten their hands dirty. They've had an academic um, experience in class and they're not job ready. So you go through one of our courses, you actually become job right? Because we make you go through a lot of projects and exercises and uh, so on. So otherwise you could, you could claim that if you went to a good engineering school, you don't necessarily need to do our program, right? So right. Yeah. if you, you know, if you actually went through an engineering, like a good engineering school and the professors made you go do a lot of hands-on problems and you came out job ready 
and you yourself spend a lot of time and you're in an ecosystem where your peers are all working hard, you know, you've, which is what, by the way, happens in most, uh, uh, a lot of American schools. And you could claim that that's what is happening in, in the IITs and a few of the NITs and maybe a few other engineering schools. But, you know, 90% of the engineering schools, that's not what is happening. The faculty are not, um, they themselves are not, you know, job ready, right? So, you know, if, if you ask them to go work in the industry, they may not be able to do a good job, right? So then they don't know what exactly is to be taught and how to teach it and what are the latest, um, you know, uh, technologies to teach and what are the platforms to use and so on, right? Um, so I'm not saying all of them. There are several faculty members who do a fantastic job, uh, but there are, you know, majority of them don't. So, and the students are also, they have, so the students themselves have not gone through a system that is rigorous. So they have to come through, come through us so that when they go to a company, they are job ready, right? So in India, that is the profile of the in markets outside of India, what we see, particularly in more developed countries, we see that well, they have gone through a, a rigorous undergrad. So then the folks who end up coming to us are actually people who are not engineers, who have not had a, a technical education. And this is their first um, uh, technical education. So they want to switch into a career into, into technology. So, you know, the single mother or like a, a nurse practitioner or so that's not majority but you do find a lot of people who come like that and of course there are people who are in in tech companies but not really in technology roles so they not had the depth to be in technology roles so they are working in professional companies and they are seeing what's happening if you can get into a technology role whether it's in software engineering or data science or AI or ML or cloud computing, cybersecurity, user experience, whatever it is. They see what's happening to people who are getting into technology roles and uh, sort of the career growth and outcomes that you can get from that. And they want to, um, you know, experience that. And they've not had the foundation to do that, maybe because they did a liberal arts course or they did an uh, ancillary course. So we get a lot of people like that in international markets where their idea is to switch into TikTok. And how how do you think about uh, new course launches? Like, which course should you launch next? Like, at, in 2020, you had largely data science cloud computing courses. So how did that portfolio expand today? What was the process you followed to decide what to launch next? See, we are always looking into the you know, outside, into the world to see, um, you know, where is the gap, right? What are companies looking for and what are people looking for? Are there providers of that, right? So we work backwards from jobs. So almost everything that we do comes from that insight to say, you know, where are the jobs? Um, uh, and every year we, not every year, all the time we're looking forward, right? So, so we, in fact, this last one year, we've launched courses in generative AI, uh, using open AI platforms, and so on, right? So, when, because and all of that happened because of ChatGPT and, and OpenAI. So, suddenly prompt engineering, uh, generative AI, all of that became mainstream. And uh, we needed courses then. And so, we launched courses in that way. The year before that, we launched courses in EV, um, electric vehicle, 
companies um, and so on, because you know there's a lot of interest there in India. Companies are high cybersecurity. Uh, a new portfolio that we built in cybersecurity courses because that was becoming a big deal, particularly post-COVID, uh, when companies have shifted online. A lot of their operations, the cybersecurity has become mainstream. So we launch courses in cybersecurity, right? So if, you know that's the beauty of. Uh, what we do, because in this world of technology, something seems to be happening all the time, um, and that much we can count on. And most people will find it difficult to learn it on their own. So that is where we have expertise in our faculty, our mentors, our internal academic uh, staff. Uh, they're really good at picking up new things, learning things fast, talking to industry, and figuring out how to, you know, what is the skill set that they are looking for. And, and we know how to teach. So we put all of that together. We create a course and put it in the market. And, you know, I would say 70, 80% of the time, maybe even higher, we get it right as to that is what people want and that's what the market needs. And uh, that's what companies want and put the course out and they just, you know, people enroll. And a small percentage of the time, we get it wrong in the sense that, um, you know, something, you know, something that we, Expected is not happening, as in uh, demand didn't meet your expectations. Yeah, the demand one, all the demand is there, but sometimes what happens is the we like for example, you know, like data engineering and things like that, right? Well, there are plenty of jobs in data engineering, but uh, in fact, there are more jobs in data engineering than the science. But as a consumer, as a learner, uh, average person in the market. They want to learn data science because that's more sexy than data engineering, right? So things like that, where you know, though the though the product is what the market needs, there is a consumer mindset that is uh, preventing the consumer from taking a decision to do the right thing for themselves. So it's not only enough to get that part of jobs and market demand right, uh, but you also need to get this um, aspect of consumer desire and consumer intent also correct right so both of those have to match yeah like nobody wants to learn sales everyone wants to learn marketing <laughs> like in an when exactly. you're doing an mba course you know in the, i mean if they were offering sales as a specialization right. no one would take it even though that's what everyone ends up doing yeah and there's there's far more jobs in yeah, that yeah thing. absolutely so 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 yeah i think that's a good good analogy and i think that's what that's what you find when you design products, um, that you know you, there is a there is a reality and there is a perception that you need both to uh, you know, both of them. We need to get them to work together. How did you uh, ensure consistency? Like as you kept increasing the courses, like what's the playbook to ensure a good outcome for the student? Like when of I mean, probably the starting point is to design like a lesson plan. Uh, what what else is there? Like. See, I would think there are two sides to it. One is the hard stuff, and we can talk about that. And the other is the softer stuff. Which is, I think, you know, the first point is the culture aspect, right? So you do need to create sort of a cult, right? And you need to explain to people your staff as to what quality standards is, what is the benchmark, uh, what is acceptable, what is not. And you need to have a culture that is formed in the team where learner satisfaction is celebrated and anything less than 
a feedback of 4.7, 4.515 NPS of, you know, 40, 50, um, you know, anything less than that, people get worried, right? So, so I think the first aspect is having a very high benchmark of what excellence is and what that culture is. So we do a lot around that, you know, creating examples of what it means, high quality, what it means uh, if you're missing the mark, training, feedback. Um, so there is one which is the, which is, as I said, ultimately you need to get your staff uh, used to what excellence is. So you do this then by I like would say rewarding this... people who are, uh, who have uh, created good stuff and like, how do you, how do you make it real? For... Yeah. So, so, so one is, of course, you know, those are there in their OKRs. Yeah. And when at the month, you know, at six months or one year, whenever their reviews are, those are the, you know, those are the things that you're measuring them against. And um, so that's one. And then the other is, you know, there is weekly celebrations and, uh, you know, public celebrations of uh, folks who are attaining high MPS and feedback and so on. And there is private uh, school, you know, I wouldn't say uh, private messaging let's say, of uh, folks who are not meeting those benchmarks. And right? uh, so, who are these? So there is, do you have like an owner for each program, uh, for each course? or Yeah, we have, yeah, yeah, we have for each cohort, we'll have an owner and uh, multiple cohorts will make a, you know, make a program and, and multiple programs will lead up. This owner is separate from the faculty. Well. Yeah, 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 faculty are, um, you know, faculty, this is almost like a, you know, each 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 program manager, as we call them, is like an owner for the health of that batch, right? So faculty is more like a horizontal resource that goes across all our programs, right? So they don't have a single, uh, they don't have any ownership other than their course and their uh, overall program academic quality, right? But as we've seen, that kind of once you standardize at the beginning, the day-to-day -day delivery excellence comes down to the program uh, owners. So, so one is this. Then there's a lot of, uh, as I said, standardization and review that goes around on them, which is more of the process excellence piece of things, where you know you have systems to collect feedback for each session, you have systems to collect feedback for content, and that gets reviewed and then improved and goes back in. So we collect feedback for every aspect. So there's a lot of process excellence pieces that I could talk for an hour on what process excellence metrics are, right? So so that I would I would think that's the second aspect and how you conduct reviews and how you conduct, um, how do you capture uh, what's happening to figure out the health of a batch, not just a batch at an individual level, right? Each student, how are you doing, right? And then, you know, using that as a mechanism to give personalized attention to each student, uh, not as a as a as a fraction or as a number that gets reported, but do you need to be paid attention to? So and we do that. And that's where the third aspect of this is, which is really building technology to be able to do that at scale. Right? Ultimately, you know, when you're today we have whatever millions of learners on the platform, uh, tens and thousands of live classes that happen daily. So at that scale, you can't do this any longer with just, you know, a culture of excellence and process excellence, right? You need to have technology that is able to automate most of it, highlight what needs attention um, and 
figure out how the learner experience can happen on its own. And in those cases where something is breaking before it breaks, highlight it to the program owner, as we spoke about, and that person then going and doing an intervention, right? So that sort of, you know, it's not, I wouldn't say it's a rocket science, but it's really paying attention to our business, our processes, our systems and figuring out how you build all three, a culture of excellence, uh, process capability and technology to be able to have very high learner satisfaction and outcomes. And I would think that's really what we've, you know, we're nonstop iterating over and trying to improve on. So it, it sounds like the program manager role is pretty important in ensuring quality. Like he's your uh, point of contact for the students and he's empowered enough to figure out and save the batch if something is going wrong and so on. Yeah. I'd say I think in our business as it exists today, it is a very people-driven business. And that, by the way, is what enables us to differentiate from just purely product-led companies, be it Coursera or Udemy, Dacity, right? So we are not trying to compete on the product automation side, right? We are trying to empower program managers. We're trying to empower our program advisors, which are our sales folks, because ultimately the customer um, or the learner wants to talk to somebody before making a decision that impacts their life. So the sales force, we call them program advisors, they're also empowered uh, to advise the right thing to the learner. Um, and the mentors who come every weekend uh, to directly engage with 25 learners and be responsible for them for the duration of the six months or year of the program. So all of these uh, folks where the mentors, the program managers and the program advisors um, from the all the way from the same point of view, then during the delivery, and then once the student is completing the program, right? So, it, at at all of those points, what we try to do is enable um, enable them to do their job, and using technology to enable that uh, enable that using AI now. So today, when a person comes in, when a learner comes in, our program advisors are able to figure out which is the best program for them. What have people like them done in the past? Uh, you know, if they need examples from an industry on how they have used AI or ML to create a certain outcome, we're able to provide that to them. So there's a lot of technology that we've built just to give visibility for each of them and how they can communicate better, right, with uh, with with learners. So yeah, so that's that sort of differentiation and the uh, and the process excellence piece. Okay, interesting. Uh, is this uh, the norm for this cohort-based uh, edtechs? Like say Upgrad and uh, there are probably a bunch of other companies that are competing with you. So uh, how, is this how typically it happens? Or like, is this something unique to great learning? So um, a few things. I think first of all, I think it comes down to what is it that you're trying to achieve, right? So... In edtech, that's what I've seen. Like uh, there are companies like Emeritus, which focuses more on, let's say, business and management education compared to us. So when you're focusing more on business and management education, you don't need to do a lot of this, right? Because if you're, you know, because you're ultimately getting, you don't need people to have hands-on exercises, personalized feedback. You don't need to do all that, right? So you may not need to build all, but if you need to get someone to learn AI which takes six, seven months, eight months. And 
and learn that in a hands-on practical manner so that you can be job ready. You cannot do it without doing this. So, you know, so that's where you'll find that um, for this purpose, for the, 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 and we also focuses on these kind of, you know, technologies and uh, areas because that's where our expertise is uh, to create outcomes in those areas. So, if you are looking at doing that, then I think you need to do this. And if you're not able to do this, then you'll not get the outcomes, right? So that's that's the way I would think of it. I think Upgrad has a different, um, you know, some of it they also do. Some of it they um, they go down a different route um, in terms of their, their focus on what they're trying to do, right? So I think ultimately companies have kind of figured out different areas of strength and uh, it is for the learner to decide, uh, you know, what, what is it that they want to achieve? So if they want to learn hands-on data science, AI, machine learning, then, you know, coming to us, I would think is the best. But that would also mean that they have to do a lot of hard work over six, nine months. Uh, and if you're not prepared to do that, then maybe it's not a good idea, right? So I think it comes down to that. But then you should have a different outcome that you're expecting at the end of the course. You know, you can't have the outcome of getting a job and then getting into a lucrative career. But, you know, but there are other outcomes to have had, right? There are other ways in which you can build your career also. So having that clarity helps because uh, these platforms are different in certain strengths and what they aim to achieve at the end of it. So as a learner, you do have a choice today. Um, and you will have very different outcomes if you do a course on Coursera or Udemy or you come to us. And there are very different expectations and very different um, time commitments and what you actually need to do. Um, and you'll have different outcomes. So that clarity helps. So uh, yeah, that's the way I would answer that. Yeah. Tell me about the sale to Baiju's. When did that happen? What made you uh, decide to do that? Like, like, you know, what led up to it? So for us, um, we were actually in the market. So, you know, as we were talking about earlier, 2020 and so on, um, you know, we started really going rapidly. Uh, 2020, 2021, um, we and some of our competitors too, the whole world woke up to EdTech and the power of EdTech. Um, so our business grew a lot and it was becoming very obvious to us that to continue growing in this direction, uh, we will need capital um, and we will need capital to attract more people into the company to reward our own folks and also in expansion. There was a market opportunity that was getting built and if you're not expanding, uh, then you know we may not get to a certain size that we might become sidelined. So the idea of capital, uh, you know, we, though we built our company for eight years without capital, in 2020 became clear that we do need um, capital. So we were in the market to raise capital. Um, and while we were having conversations to raise capital, then, uh, then we got an offer from Baiju's. And at that point, we thought that that is a, that is a good decision. Of course, uh, you know, uh, can't see into the future what's going to happen, right? Two, three years later. But in 2020, 2021, Baiju's was very, it was the I, in, in hottest very good. tech in the world. Like, I think. It, yeah. 
hottest edtech in the world, very uh, solid balance sheet, um, you know, marquee investors. Um, so there was no no risk, at least in that point when we looked at it. In fact, that looked to be a far safer uh, home than to go into the market and raise one round of funding from one investor and then that kind of gives you a one year, two year runway or even lesser and then again go raise another round of funding and keep going. So we didn't want to do that. We never wanted to just keep going into the market. We'd rather um, execute our business really well. Uh, and that was a thought. So it was to find a safe place to uh, build a company. Um, also, we got to a certain size. Um, and if we continue to grow bigger, what what um, size? Like, then what, would have been, what kind of revenue did you do in 21? What was your ARR? I think it would have gotten, yeah, gotten close to that 80 million, um, uh, 80 million range. Wow. Right. So, um, 20, that 2021 close, I think that's what we would have had. And how much was US uh, in this? Or what was the split? Uh, see, at that point, US was probably still smaller. We were just still building, right? I would say 20, 25 percent. Right? Okay, but uh, the global uh, revenue uh, probably even smaller. altogether would have been more than the domestic. No, 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 no. Okay. Global revenue, um, you know, almost always has been uh, smaller than the domestic. Oh, uh, okay, okay, interesting. Right, so. Now it's gotten, you know, gotten, gotten, the global business now has gotten quite big. But otherwise, throughout, it's been little, little less than the okay. domestic business. And uh, I think you were valued um, at about 600 million or something like that? Uh, yeah, that is, that is including all the, uh, all the earnouts and, you know, the stock appreciation and some of the other things that were, uh, that were my sport based, right? So, uh, you so was, was it an outright purchase or you continued to hold equity? Like what, what happens typically in such a case? What, what do you mean by earnouts? And you were talking whilst no. So there, there are you know that depends on how the deal gets structured, yeah. right? So you know there are companies that do deals differently, um, and uh, ultimately, typically, all companies will look at it and say that well, some portion of it they'll give it in cash, some portion will be in stock. And some portion will be in some kind of a, a retention, right? Because no company would want to acquire someone and then the founding team or the management or the leadership goes, right? So they will structure it in such a way that these are components that are there in, in most deeds. And what usually gets negotiated is uh, what is the percentage for each of these things, right? Um, so, so for us, that's also how it was, right? So there was some portion in cash, some portion uh, in equity and some portion. In, in in Erna, so um, and um, so that's yeah. Can you just help me understand earnout? Uh, I'm like, what does it mean? So basically, earnout would mean that you know you you stay and then you hit, you have to hit your milestones, right? Because when when the acquisition happened, you've told the company that you're going to hit certain milestones, right? So now this is the company whoever is the acquirer coming back and saying that well, you hit those milestones and then you'll get paid. And I think that's a very fair way to do it, right? Because ultimately, especially in, in these, the, the difference to that setup would be if you are a completely product-driven company, right? And uh, there is no, you know, but if you're if you are acquiring a business, 
where there is continuity of business needed, right? So then this would be how things would get structured. But if you are going to do like a, you know, if you have built a product, uh, I don't know how that WhatsApp deal was to Facebook and things like that, right? Because if the product can run on its own, right? Where the you know where the acquiring company is just buying technology, um, I, you know whether it's algorithms or technology or systems or software or whatever, then I can imagine like an outright purchase also, right? Because then the value is not in the management or the leadership or the team, the value is in the technology. Uh, but in our business, that's not how it is. It, you know, there is of course value in the technology. There's value in the know-how, but there's also value in the people and the systems and, and so on. And, and this so on. So you can is imagine uh, like, it's like a cash uh, about that you get or you get more equity or what, what is? So that also depends on the, you know, on what you actually uh, structure with the company. But yeah, it's a combination of cash and terms of. Okay. And so Baiju's acquired 100% of great learning or did you retain? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, I mean, yeah. didn't you, uh, like, giving up 100% of your business, was it like a hard call to take? Or? Uh, yeah, but I think, see, I think the way we thought about it at that point and what was told to us was also that you will get to operate it independently, right? So, uh, which was true, by the way, by Jews interfered very little with our business. Um that you know you are getting to operate independently. So I think the way we looked at it was not just from the point of view of immediate control, but we were looking at it from the point of view of what was going to be sustainable over the long term, right? So which you know where where can great learning be sustainable? Uh, not for the next one year, two year, three years, but for the next five years, ten years, fifteen years, twenty years, right? Uh, let's say even if the founding team is not there, what is going to make the company sustainable, right? And so uh, it's not that anyone or any of us want to go anywhere. In fact, nobody left and nobody has gone anywhere. Everybody's still together. So we are very clear on, uh, you know, we like the business and we want to continue in the business. But the question always is, you know, where is a safe home? Um, and we want to be part of whoever has got a lot of strength or you have to say that, well, you can build a company, um, you know, independently uh, through IPO, through what? So that's a different route uh, where you say that you're going to raise VC funding, you're going to raise X, and then you're going to do this. Um, uh, and that also, by the way, is not subject. It's, that also doesn't say that you're going to be safe because you could raise VC funding and you have capital for, a, uh, for one or two years and uh, market conditions can change and it's not, you know, it's not entirely clear that you'll be able to raise another round. So some of the companies that uh, that are there in the market today, um, you know, they, they went down that route. And when capital was easy to raise, they were easy to raise capital. But today it's not easy to raise equity money. So they're now having to take debt. And which is super risky because if you take debt, then... Um, yeah, I mean, Baiju's is any change, an example of the risk of debt, right? It's a great example of that. Uh, but any change in your... Because you are, you know... And this is, again, my philosophy and part of the founding team, all of our philosophy is that, you know, we don't... We are experts in our area, but we're not going to be able to predict what the future is going to be 100% of the time, right? So there are going to be business risks. There are going to be shocks. And you want to take things which operate 
uh, within a certain risk and you want to minimize your risk as much as possible. So, and you don't want to be exposed to, um, you know, things that you cannot control impacting the sustainability of your business. So, and that we never wanted to jeopardize, you know, our team, our partners, our learners, um, and we built it in that way. So, so that's sort of where it is, right? So, so which is sort of when, at that point, when in 2020, 2021, when we look forward, that seemed to be the safest bet. Um, and when we look today into the forward, you know, yeah, maybe that was not the safest bet, right? But, um, and you may need no, to, nobody could have predicted it. So I, I mean, yeah. nobody could pre- yeah. nobody could predict how the world would yeah. like. So I think this is that what ends up happening. And then, depending on where you end up, um, you know, what you can do is you can continue to build the best business. Because if you do build a great business, then yeah, then you can you know you can take another shot, which is sort of what um, you know we'll we'll probably have to do now. Um, and sort of that's that's a way. That's a way that it kind of. So, uh, how, how would you get a second chance at owning? Uh, hypothetically, how would you get a second chance at owning Great Learning? Because as of now, you have no stake, right? So, I mean, or, or would you? No, I don't. I'm not. I'm not thinking about whether you know we are going to own or so I'm not talking. I'm still not thinking about from an ownership point of view, right? So, I'm like, but, but, why are you still motivated? Uh, because uh, is it like you still have your earnouts and what? Are, why are you still motivated? Because you have no ownership now, uh, it's it's a salary that you're getting, right? Yeah. See, I I think for me it's super. But there are several people. One one there are several people in my team who have got these ops and equity and so on, right? So, uh, in fact, I still have, um, you know, these ops and so on. So these ops so of my are, or uh, of great learning. Yeah, my. I mean, not ESOP shares. I have shares, but there are people in the company who have ESOPs and. Um, of great learning, okay. Of great learning, which they have not been able to capture yet, so they have ownership. So I mean, that's just the financial aspect, right? So I do feel ownership to some extent that people who trusted to join my team on this journey, uh, I do feel ownership and a sense of responsibility that um, they have a certain outcome. But that is on the on the financial part. But even outside of the financial part. I think uh, you know I spent ten years on this, and so did uh, so did some of us in the founding team, and some of the others spent even longer. Um, and none of us did this from the point of view of let's just get a return and exit and retire, right? I think we did it because we think it is meaningful, and you're having an impact to society and the world. And, uh, and it'd be a shame that that doesn't continue. So as I said, when we did the sale to Baiju, we thought that regardless of and the founding team being there or not, you know, the company is in a safe place. So, uh, and that's important for us, right? That, um, you know, it continues, the legacy is there, the business is strong, uh, and the business has to be strong for us to continue having the impact that we are having, right? Uh, and it's actually, you know, if I think about, if I reflect on the 10-year journey, it's actually quite magical what we've done, right? We, we are impacting learners, not just in India, in, in hundreds and thousands and millions, but we are actually impacting learners from around the world. And, um, you know, in multiple continents, and multiple languages, cultures, and, you know, an Indian company doing that in scale and um, having real outcomes and helping people out, right? So, you know, I'm very proud of that. And 
why would you want to end that in any any way right if there is something fundamentally wrong with it then sure you know either you're not having an impact or you're having an impact but it is unsustainable but you know we are in this amazing place where we are having great impact the business is sustainable it is profitable uh it's a question of how do we make sure that it continues to be you know sustainable and strong not just for one or two years but for the next 10 15 20 30 years right so um so that's 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 what we really need to solve for and one solution as i said we thought that there was a solution two years back which turned out was not uh, uh you know fully there so we need to now think of another solution um you know so as i said the business, so that the business is strong i think there will be solution so to your question so what is motivating me to keep going i think these two things one is making sure that the legacy continues and two you know uh, making sure that whoever is joined uh, the team uh, has a shot at the outcomes um, that uh, you know is there in the business right so do so so and of course then if you actually extend that thought you know we also have tens and thousands and hundreds and thousands of learners and we want to make sure that uh, you know their uh, experience and you know we are able to honor the commitments that they have so all of those pieces are actually still exciting to me um and it's also so that's just from if you look at what is done in the past and if you look forward into what we can do um that is still actually quite a lot of things that we can do so it's not gotten at least to me and you know it's not yet gotten to a point where i say they you know i've run out of ideas uh on uh how to grow this business or uh how to uh you know create products and services that continue to change people's lives and like the whole last year was super exciting with chatgpt um and uh you know and in um and in in you know in international markets which is where i focus on we launched cohorts in portuguese in brazil we launched cohorts in in mexico in spanish so we have teams there i visited mexico and the team uh, several times so you know so financial aspects and equity and ownership is one but there are also other things that are quite satisfying and fulfilling um which sort of keeps me going essentially like the fact that byju's was so hands off and gave you full freedom is the reason why you're still here because you're still running the business as a founder would yes i think that way and you know that way uh, that way i would say they they did keep whatever <laughs> you know whatever promises that they made so uh, are you like uh, how did the revenue trajectory change are you still doubling every year like you were at 80 million roughly when byju's acquired and yeah so we are we are we are doubling our revenue uh, every year but now you know we at the immediately year after after the acquisition the focus was on growth now uh, now the focus is on growth and profitability so you know we have shifted the growth projections more into see ultimately we can we can but then that will come at uh, you know in the past when we were doubling we were making you know we were like breaking even right so whatever Uh, whatever extra there was we would put that back into the business uh now i think the market is not or at least that's not what uh we may need to do to build a sustainable business into the future and it might be one of 
um, showing a certain profitability, and you know, which is which means that then uh, you would not, you know, take it to the edge of growth, right? So you would, uh, you know, you would you would you would balance growth with uh, profitability, and we know that pretty well how to do. So we're not trying to grow. We're not trying to double this year, but rather we are going to try and do that with a healthy margin, um, and uh, and and prove that out for the next uh, next few years to say that well we can grow, uh, we can grow and grow at a good margin. Are you uh, IPO ready in the sense that do you have the kind of Typically, IPO-ready companies, I guess investors look for 20-25% margin, stable growth. Uh, are you at that stage? No, not in this year. But I think uh, we could do that from, you know, if you go to market today and then if you ask me, do we have the track record over the last two or three years? We don't. Uh, but the objective is to get there uh, next year or the year after that and then have a track record wow. so in the next one to two years we can we can actually show that track record and uh, yeah, your revenue must yeah. be like more than I, I guess 250 million plus kind of a number uh, yeah I mean whatever it is in the public market right so and revenue also you know it's a question of what is being as revenue and what is what can be realized so they are these are two different metrics uh but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, but yeah, it's actually, it's, it's not the number that you said, but you can look it up. Okay. Okay. Uh, the, uh, booking versus realizes because there is a, like a EMI component, uh, people are not paying the fees all upfront. Uh, that's why. No, not entirely because the services is over, over 12 months. Right. Okay. So, uh, so, you know, you can't, um, so though see that that's why we actually are uh, you know cash flow positive we do get that money into our company but we can't we can't uh, book all of that because we will be delivering that over a period of uh, three months six months sometimes even longer okay 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 got it amazing uh, so you know what uh, what are your top learnings uh, in this journey of being a founder with uh, over the last decade plus like you know things which you think other founders can benefit from uh, I think one is you know the going back to when we started right the analogy of dating right I think that's a good thought which is that you know you are in this for a long term um, so I don't think it's a good idea to ever think of business or startups as a mechanism to just get in and make money and exit right i think then you are in for um in for in for failure and sadness so that i would say keep it aside i never thought of this as a way to just do a quick turnaround, off right so uh i was prepared to do this for the rest of my life it so happened that we got an exit right we were not building the company for an exit at all uh, we were building and you know, even if the Exit did not happen. I think all of us would have been quite happy working together and uh, um, continuing to grow and continuing to have the impact that we were having. So I think that's number one. So who you're working with, um, you know, you better be sure that uh, uh, that you do want to work with them and you do want to work with them for a long time. Um, so I, and I am I've been truly blessed with that. Uh, who I 
who I've worked with and the relationships that I've built and, uh, you know, the skills uh, that I've got to got to build over a period of time and the impact that we've had. Right? So I think that's one. Um, you know, so the second thing is I think having, you know, which is sort of related to this is uh, having a longer term perspective, not just the people you want to work with, but, you know, which kind of comes down to what is your core value and what are you excited about and what do you want to do in life? So for me, as I said in the beginning, um, you know, when you ask the question as to what do you, what, what got you into this, I think the idea of being in business, uh, you know, building, building a, a successful company in India, um, having an impact for, you know, hundreds and thousands and millions of people, uh, that was very strong for me. I was willing to go through any kind of hardship for that, right? Even though in the first three, four years um, after business school, I made no money. And in fact, I had no salary, no income, no startup, no idea, no nothing. But I was just sort of trying different things. And even after that, once great learning happened, you know, some real material uh, capital came after like six, seven, eight years, eight years, right? So... The fact that, you know, you, you don't do, so, so basically from 2009, when I went into business school till, uh, till, you know, 2020, 2021, which is like 12 years, um, I was underpaid by a massive, um, you know, a massive amount and which was perfectly fine by me because I actually enjoyed that 12 years. So I find that people find that very hard to sustain. So you know, you have to have something that enables you to sustain. It could be a passion in a certain industry or a sector or something that you want to do, whatever it is. Now, I, there is no guarantee that it could have happened in 12 years either. It could have happened in 15, it would have happened in 20 years, and I was still prepared to go for 15 or 20 years. It did happen in 12 years, and you're lucky some strange way it could happen in two or three years. But the reality is, you know, you can't predict when, uh, you know, and maybe something will not even happen, but will you still keep going? And I was perfectly fine to keep going without the reputational benefit or without the capital benefit. So I would say that's the second thing um, that, uh, you know, as an advice to others and also, you know, I think that, so for me, it kind of reinforced that value. And the third, I would think is, you know, really about this idea of, you know, what is your, having a strength, having a sense of what is your strength, what is your uh, defensible, you know, what is it that makes you different and valuable, right? And having an understanding of what are you bringing to the table, right? And maybe you don't have a whole lot to bring to the table on day one, right? But then what is it that you're going to eventually build up? You know, either it's on the technology side or on the marketing side or sales side or ops side or product side or like whatever it is, right? So you need to know that. And maybe on day one, like I didn't know all the things that I eventually came to realize and get right. So Day one, when I joined Great Learning, I joined as a product guy, but then, you know, built skills around ops and academics and uh, eventually sales and marketing and international business and growth and so on, right? So, um, so I think that's sort of uh, what I would say uh, would be like three things if I were to enable somebody to think about, like really focusing on what you are good at and uh, show up with that every day for a very long period of time. Uh, 
without expectation. Then yeah, then good things. Uh, wealth creation. Without yeah <laughs> yeah. So you have to be pretty crazy to do this. As <laughs> Why would you do that? Right. So yeah. so I think that's the end of it. You have to actually be pretty crazy to do something wow. like that. Yeah. Uh, but it's actually you know, but it's very rewarding. Uh, and it's a lot of fun, particularly if you get to do it with people that you like. Thank you so much for your time, Arjun. It was an amazing chat. Thanks, Akshay. And that brings us to the end of this conversation. I want to ask you for a favor now. Did you like listening to this show? I'd love to hear your feedback about it. Do you have your own startup ideas? I'd love to hear them. Do you have questions for any of the guests that you heard about in this show? I'd love to get your questions and pass them on to the guests. Write to me at ad at the podium dot in. That's ad at t h e p o d i u m dot in.